and welcome back to Speaking Kid. I'm your host, Nick Siegel, and every week I'm joined by guests to discuss parenting, early childhood education, and our own experiences parenting. So welcome everyone to another episode of Speaking Kid. I am thrilled today to be joined by not only uh, uh, a wonderful man, uh, a father, but also with a very uh, acclaimed uh, professional life and uh, as an author, uh, as an executive. And he's also been my friend for 40 years uh, from our days at George School. So I want to welcome Mark K. Grove to the podcast, Speaking Kids. So welcome, Mark. It's 45 years, uh, Nick Siegel, but Thank who's you. counting? Um, yeah, it's wonderful to be here. My God, you're, you're one of my, my oldest and dearest friends, and this is going to be a delight. Yeah, yeah. So I want to start <clears throat> by introducing you professionally. So on the, the back jacket of his most recent book, Incomparable Grace, JFK, The Presidency, Mark Optogrove is a presidential historian and the author of five books on the presidency. He currently serves as the president and CEO of the LBJ Foundation and the presidential historian for ABC News. Earlier in his career, he was the director of the LBJ Presidential Library and publisher of Newsweek. He has interviewed seven U.S. presidents. I have been there for some of those interviews. But Mark, I'd like you to introduce yourself as a dad, and what, I just ask the question, how would you define yourself and introduce yourself as a dad? In terms of introduction, I would say I, I was first a son before I was a dad, and, and I had a really good dad to, to look upon. I know we'll talk about that in a moment, but that informed um, who I might become as a, as a father. And I'm the father of two. I'm the father of uh, a biological child, Charlie, who's now 22 years old. An adopted Guatemalan American daughter, uh, Tally, who's 16, and importantly, I'm the I'm the stepfather to two children I consider my own: 24-year-old Isabel and 22-year-old Mateo. So, uh, I, in terms of what I what characterizes me as a dad, I am flawed but dedicated. I guess is the way to put it. <laughs> Flawed but dedicated. I love that. I love that. You know, when I asked you to join this podcast, I was telling you about, I'm going to do this podcast called Speaking Kid. Um, what was your response to that? Well, first of all, I got the name wrong. I uh, <laughs> got time to get that right. I said, why would you want to interview me? I've been a complete failure. Uh, and I, I think that speaks to what so many fathers go through, which we, we, none of us feel like we're succeeding because we don't know how to do this job, right? We're learning on the job. There's no handbook that comes that when you're a parent where you look at a definitive answer, you're adapting to a kid who doesn't think like you, who doesn't come from your generation, uh, who's finding his or her own way in the world. I mean, there are so many variables in parenting that even if there were a handbook, it wouldn't account for all the variables out there, right? We've got to figure it out for our own. And at the end of the day, I think the most important thing, and I think we're going to come back to this often throughout the podcast, is leading with love. If you love your kid, that's the most important thing because they're going to know it. 
uh, even if you're making mistakes, and uh, and that's certainly been my experience, I made a ton of mistakes. I, I continue to make mistakes as a parent. But my kids know at the end of the day that I love them and that I'm going to be there for them. Hmm. You talk about this idea, there's no playbook. Um, did you have role models uh, in your life that that help define you as, as a parent? In the beginning, I did. My, you know, my dad, as I said, my, my parents, uh, and Nick, you met my parents. My parents were so incredibly different from me. I think they were ultimately proud of what I would become in my life. It took me a long time to find my own way, but it's so vastly different from from their lives and sensibilities and experiences. They might, my, you know, my parents were from the middle class on a good day, um, Philadelphia. And um, the, the remarkable thing is you, you mentioned George School. You and I went to this wonderful private school, I think, which fundamentally changed our lives. Uh, and your circumstances were very different. You had lost both your parents and you went to George School uh, trying to find out what your life meant at that point. I mean, you were in a really um, vulnerable, formative state of your life. And George School, I, ha- I think, helped to nurture you. In my case, you know, I came from this very conservative suburban Philadelphia, middle class background on a good day. I think it was lower middle class at certain times, too, where my parents were living some kind of paycheck to paycheck. And, um, and yet they realized that I was not doing well in public school. Bear in mind, I was the the second of four children in my family, and my parents were struggling to make ends meet. And yet, my father worked three jobs, and my my mother worked as well to send me to George School, a very expensive private school, which had nothing to do with their sensibilities. It was so progressive. It was so liberal. It was so independently minded. It was antithetical to the way my parents thought. And yet, for some reasons, reasons I will never know to this day, they made these incredible sacrifices in order to send me there. And like you, it it fundamentally changed my life. Mm. So, listen, George School affected my life completely. Uh, It was was parents, uh, because I didn't have any. It was uh, social graces. It was uh, empathy. It was... Uh, morality, all of those dynamics. Community as well, right? Community, right. right. And and so, yeah, and that's a big part of it. And and that's what family is, right, on so many levels, is that community. So um, you and I share the fondness of of, of that experience together, which is one of the great bonds that we have as friends, right? Because we we are like-minded in so many ways. Um, so I, I listen, I applaud your parents that they had the, the fortitude and the sacrifice that they must have made. It's just, know, it's monetarily. Just, you know, I, I, my, again, I, my, my dad was a tool and die salesman and he spent half uh, the time on the road trying to sell tool and die parts. And he spent about half the, the time in the shop. And then on on weeknights, he would work in our garage making tool and die parts on the side. And then on the weekends, he would work in a factory. Uh, I worked with him some of those nights in the garage. I worked with him some of those weekends in a factory uh, to make money as well. I saw how hard my dad worked. And again, my father would go to George School and and feel like he was on Jupiter. I mean, it was it, it, it was so far from his sensibility. And yet, I, 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 again, I don't know to this day 
why my parents sent me there because they didn't send my my siblings to they they sent them to private schools for for a couple of years a di- different private school very far more conservative than George School was uh, but for some reason they knew that I needed it and I I, I don't know where they got that but I, I, and and both of them are long gone so I'll never know but I I do know that it changed my life and I I wouldn't be what I am today without that investment without that formative experience that both you and I had. Mm. And so does that, that all has to shape your parenting style? Were you able to translate that and use any of the knowledge and wisdom from that relationship at your school? Let's say if you're in conflict with your son, Charlie, in, in, in any given moment, is it, is it that linear? Yeah, I'm not sure it is, Nick, and, but, but I do... I did know the importance of love at the end of the day, knowing my kids, uh, making sure that my kids knew that they were loved. We had tremendous conflicts as, as I did with my parents, mostly ideological. I mean, it was, I was like, you know, I was Mike Stivic living with Archie Bunker in many respects. It was, it was that bad with my, in my parents' household. My kids uh, all see eye to eye with me in terms of social issues and politics. And so we don't have those same conflicts. We don't have those. I almost had a socioeconomic conflict with my parents in a way, because you and I were in a very different world going to George school during the day. And I would go back to this middle class, you know, suburban Philadelphia household at night. It was totally different. So there was there was that dynamic at work. But one of the things I did get from my my parents is a work ethic. I feel like you know, just like my father worked three jobs, as you know, I've worked three jobs during the course of my life. Those five books didn't happen by accident. They happened because I was working at nights and on weekends and on vacations uh, in order to get much needed money to, to send our four kids to, to school and to do the things that we wanted to do as a, as a family. I've got television contracts. That's, that's all on the side as well. So at the end of the day, while I wasn't working as hard as my father in terms of the, the labor that he put into his job, I, I, uh, I, I'm working hours that are just as long. And, and actually, I, and I feel in a way that's a tribute to my parents and the sacrifices they made as well as helping my own family to achieve our goals for our kids. Yeah. You know, parenting is a, is, is a, a partnership with, with your significant other at the time. And, and, and you and I both have been through a divorce with, with children and now have uh, the opportunity to be parents again with a second relationship. In, in the first relationship, was there the opportunity to huddle up and say, hey, listen, here's my philosophy on parenting. What's your philosophy on parenting? And how do we align those two philosophies? Did that, did that ever happen? No, it didn't. Um, you know, and, and, and one of the things, uh, I'm not going to speak for you, Nick, but I know you and I both had struggles in our first marriages. But one of the issues that I faced and now realize more than ever is that we had different agendas. Um, we did not share the same set of values. And I realized more than anything that, that my ex-wife was essentially working against me as a parent. Uh, I, I, um, I now see it pretty clearly. My kids were disrespectful to me uh, when they were growing up. My, my son in particular, I had real problems with my son. And I, I had trouble with that. I mean, you and I have talked about the, the violent struggles in some cases that we had with our kids. 
um, that we're, you know, we look back upon as being the worst moments, not only of our, our parenting lives, but of our lives. And I now, again, realize that I had a an ex-wife who was rewarding my kids for being d- disrespectful to me. She wanted to see that. She wanted to see my volatility and and in so doing would tell the kids, see, that's that's who you don't want to be in life. It made her feel better about herself. That's, that's painful to think about. Uh, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, I realized that that was embedded in my son in particular because he was being rewarded by his mother for treating me that way. Uh, I, I can only imagine how painful and frustrating that must have been at the time. You know, your son is now 22? 22. 20, and have you had the opportunity? And, and before I ask the question, you know, one of the reasons I got divorced was because I needed I needed a reboot. I needed the ability to come and have a relationship with my kids without the influence directly of my wife. And and God bless my wife. I I hold no ill will, and we're 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 very friendly to this day. But our parenting styles were so different. I needed to step away from it so that I could have my own relationship with my kids. Um, have you had that opportunity now with staying, staying on Charlie? Because, uh, you know, a father and a son relationship, to have a son who's disrespectful is, God, that's got to be one of the, that's one of the most painful things that, that I can imagine. But have you had that opportunity to, to make peace and, and come at it from a more elevated perspective to, to help the relationship? You know, I, I think there's, there's, Respect there. I mean, uh, uh, he he had the the idiot button. He would he would he would press. He would call me an idiot, and you know, be called an idiot um, by a nine year old when you're doing your very best to parent him. And that that was a tough thing, and and it's it it set me off. It just it was one of the, it was a horrible thing. I do think he has uh, great respect for me now. It doesn't always come out. Again, I think he still at 22 knows the right buttons to push when he wants to get under my skin. And, and those dynamics don't go away overnight, but, but he knows I love him. He knows my love is unconditional. My love is probably a little more, a little less complicated than the love that he might have from his mother. One of the things that I, that I did, Nick, that I don't regret is, um, as you know, I got remarried very quickly after my divorce. I had met my now wife um, just before um, divorcing my uh, my ex-wife, which it was inevitable. I had nothing to, to do with my meeting my, my current wife. But I met her and knew instantly that I had won the lottery. This is a person who whose values matched my own almost identically. And we thought we should get married sooner rather than later to show our kids who had seen uh, broken marriages during the course of their early years so they could see a healthy relationship built on mutual respect and love and that that would inform their lives going forward as much of a shock as it might have been to them to have their parents remarrying so soon after divorces that seeing this partnership at work would be helpful to them later on in life seeing what a a, a loving marriage really looked like would be beneficial to them and i think that that has been the case Yes, uh, your your dynamic and my dynamic with our second wives is 
polar opposites to what the first one were. And, and I believe everyone has that opportunity to look at their life if you have the, and it took great courage for me to step away from that first relationship versus saying, well, this is my lot in life, you know, and uh, accepting what that was going to be and to say, no, I want more. And I, I want to have that nurturing, loving relationship with someone else. And I want to have it with my children. And um, so the fact that we've both created that, we certainly didn't marry the same person again. <laughs> that, might be, that, that might be the most uh, dramatic understatement in the history of understatements. Uh, I, I will say this. I, the thing is, I know you were struggling with this and I was too. When we were both separating from our first wives, we felt um, loyal to them to some degree and we were struggling with how loyal we should be, how much in, uh, involvement in their lives we should continue to have due to our loyalty to them and to the, you know, the commitment that we had made to them uh, years and years back. Um, what helped me enormously is we went to a family therapist which, who I'd been seeing with my ex-wife and I continued on with my now current wife. And, I, and she, my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, was sitting with the, 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 were sitting with the therapist and I said to him, I confess, I, I, I'm trying to figure out the line to draw here with my ex-wife, I feel a need to get her on the right track, to be involved in her life, to be continue to be loyal to her. Tell me how, and yet I am embarking on this relationship with this new woman who is the love of my life. And he looked at me and he pointed to her and he said, your loyalty should be to her. My girlfriend, soon to be fiance, soon to be wife. And that helped enormously for me to detach myself from a relationship that was ultimately toxic and I don't think would have been beneficial ultimately to either one of us. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that loud and clear. And, and I applaud you for, you know, taking that step because you really, it, it's a demonstration of commitment that I want this relationship to work. Yeah. And, 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 and oftentimes we need to look outside of ourselves for perspective, for clarity, and also for guidance to say, how do I, how do I do this better? You know, if I'm going to step back into this arena, how do I learn from the past and one, not to repeat it, but two, to then grow and, and forge new ground uh, moving forward. Part of the <clears throat> parenting dilemma, and I, you and I are both um, ambitious people. We are driven. Uh, you, you know, you're talking about working multiple jobs at the same time and, 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 the, the witness of seeing your father do that as well, you know, I think the process of being a parent is flawed out of the gate from a timing perspective, right? We, we, we look to become parents in our, our 20s and or our 30s um, because that's the norm, right? And also that's when we have the most energy to, to, to do it. But I was 28 when we adopted uh, Annie. How old were you when you, when you had Charlie? I was 38. I, was, I came much later to parenthood than oh. you did. Okay. All right. And yet the ambition is still there. Right. And so for 20s, 30s, when we look to that, all of a sudden we're going out in there in the world to provide for our families. Right. But when we have some success, and I'll speak for myself, I had some success um, in my business life and there were rewards and there were wonderful um, feedback mechanisms that came back that supported and nurtured that. 
Well, we don't get that same feedback mechanism from our children. You know, we don't, you can't push a button and say, you know, uh, you're doing a great job. You know, kids are challenging. They're doing all that they're doing. And so for me, you know, when I looked at the balance of the energy I was putting into parenting and I was looking at the energy I was putting into my to my growth as a, as a professional and wanting to crush it, right, conquer the world and make a lot of money and all those things, I started to lean towards my profession and away from my kids simply because I was getting more of a payoff. Oh, man. From, yeah, yeah. I from hear that. that I hear know? that totally. You, you, you're right. You, you and I both uh, achieved some success in our, in our 30s. I, I, I did very little in my 20s, but I was starting to hit my groove in my 30s, starting to find myself professionally and to a large degree personally. And you're so right. I, I, I couldn't control the environment at home. Certainly, you can't control your kids for the reasons that we suggested earlier. But when I went into the office every day and I was the boss, you know, and I could, I, 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 I could be the master of my own domain. That felt good, and I, I have to confess, I probably spent more hours in the office than I needed to because it was a controlled environment. And then I would go home to the chaos of this this household with with kids, and it was a wholly different experience. It didn't mean I didn't want to be there. It just meant that I felt less in control there than I did in my work environment. And I think the prob probably the same was true for you. Yeah, no, no question. No question. Um, I, I want to touch on one more subject um, before we transition to the knowledge and the insights and the behind the curtain look you have at some of the most influential and powerful people on the planet being these presidents and, and their relationships as, as, as parents and as sons and, and all of that. But we share the bond uh, having both lost parents to suicide. And uh, that has had uh, immense impact in my life. And um, I, I ask the question to you, how has that impacted your philosophy and, and your demonstration as a parent having lost uh, a parent to suicide? You know, my, my situation, Nick, was probably a whole lot easier. As hard as it was, it was a whole lot easier than it was for you. You lost your mom at such a young age. I mean, I knew you right after that uh, happened right. and you were still so raw and it was tough. And you were, you were such a good kid, such a nice young guy but I could I could see the pain. The pain was palpable, uh, and and the um, I, I think you were you were grappling with what that meant, what it meant to uh, your life and to your future. For me, I lost my dad in 2014. I was in my early 50s. It had been a huge year in many respects for me. Like maybe, maybe in, in some ways the, the climax of my career or a climactic moment in my career. And my father was suffering from depression and shot himself in the, in the head. It was a shock to us. We didn't realize the depths of his depression. Uh, it happened because of some family issues as well um, that are painful to recall. But I, I guess my own personal feelings were those of, I felt like I had failed my dad for not understanding the depths of the depression. Uh, and understanding the, the fact that this condition could potentially be fatal because it drove him to suicide. I didn't know that. 
And I perhaps looked at it more glibly than I should. Depression runs in my family. I've suffered mildly from depression at certain points, not certainly not to the point of suicide. So that that's the one overriding feeling that I had, one of, of slight guilt. That said, I know my dad knew I loved uh, that I loved him and that I appreciated all that he did for me. And I, my, what little success I've achieved in my life, I think, was a testament to my father's love, dedication, and hard work. And I think I expressed that to him on many, many occasions. And so he couldn't have felt like a failure to me as a father, and that makes me feel good. Mm, I love that. So you were open with your communication of loving towards towards your dad. You know, there was not a time that I didn't express my gratitude to my parents for the sacrifices they made. And and I will say that, you know, you and I saw those those yearbooks from George School and uh, you would, and the, the the seniors would have pictures of themselves, and if they wanted to, they they would have a quote, and most were quoting, you know, Led Zeppelin or Joni Mitchell or Pink Floyd or something, and I I was the one who 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 just expressed gratitude to my parents, to my parents, without whose sacrifices I would never have had this experience at George School, something along those lines. No one else had had written that. And that's not to say that they didn't feel the gratitude for their parents, but that's how profoundly I felt at the at the time. I knew what they were doing for me. I, I knew it deep down inside uh, that, but for them, my life would have been very different at the time. And that stays with me throughout the course, stayed with me rather throughout the course of my life. Mm, I love that. I love that. And... To what degree do you express that love to your kids? You know, they know that I love them and I support them no matter what. And, you know, I, I mentioned my two kids, Charlie and, and, um, and Tally. Um, I should mention my stepkids, which I, who I talked about earlier, Isabel and Mateo, uh, whom I, my wife and I had dinner with last night. Uh, they live here in Austin, Texas, where we live. And... Uh, I can't imagine them not being around. I, 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 we absolutely love them. And I think that they um, they have a father who did was not your traditional father. There, there was, I think, a, a relatively fractious relationship there for a variety of reasons. And so I think I have been filled the paternal role in their lives. Um, we are, my, my wife, Amy, and I are very much the parents in their lives, the cohesive unit in their lives that they didn't have. And I think we are probably that for my kids as well. So they are so much a part of my parenting identity. The feeling of, of being a father to them in their lives has been one of the most rewarding experience of my life. Mm. Was there a, uh, a learning curve with that? I mean, you, you got remarried pretty quickly. Was there any sort of strategy that, that goes, you, you notice I keep going back to strategies because that's how my mind works with how to deal with, with issues. Um, was there any sort of conscious effort of, okay, these, how I've got these two new fresh beings that are going to be part of integral parts of my life and my wife now loves them. And how am I going to, how am I going to address that? Cause there are many families that come together and their stepkids along the way. What, what, how did you play it? Let me let me relate uh, uh, an anecdote from JFK. You mentioned the book, uh, my, my latest book, Incomparable Grace, JFK and the Presidency. There's a story about JFK uh, coming back to the White House in the wee hours 
of uh, the, the, the day after his inauguration. He's coming home at like three o'clock in the morning after having been inaugurated president the previous day. And he, he crawls back in the White House after partying for much of the night. And because the presidential bedroom is being renovated, he goes and sleeps in the Lincoln bedroom in the large wooden Lincoln bed. And a reporter the, the next day asks him what it was like to sleep in the large, daunting bed of Abraham Lincoln. And he responds, I just jumped in and hung on. And I think that's parenting. You just jump in and you hang on because you have no, it's daunting. It, it is really intimidating in some respects, but you do the very best you can. The advantage that I had as a step parent though, is I had a, a wife who shared my values instinctively. And we were one unit. There was nothing we disagreed with. And the kids knew not only that they had one parent, but they had two parents who loved them and who were always going to be on the same page. I think that was invaluable in particular to my stepkids. My kids had a harder time with that, but they've come around to it. And as I mentioned earlier, ultimately, we are the parental unit. We, I don't say that with a, a, as a point of pride, but our kids have gravitated toward us as the parental North Star because they, they, they haven't had that same connection on the other side. Mm. And you touch on uh, Tally and, and Charlie and, and coming into that fold. Um, were there sit-downs with that and say, hey, listen, this is, what's, this is the new reality and, and to give them the space to have their feelings with it? And, and was there the openness for them to express their discontent or their upset with it? Did, were there those opportunities? Yeah, you know, there had to be because they, they came out regardless of whether I opened up those dialogues or not. My, my son, for instance, Charlie, while, while he was, I'm, I'm sitting in our home in Austin, Texas, which is where my wife and I got married. Uh, and my son, partly because I think he was pressured by his his mother, would, did not attend the ceremony, refused to attend the ceremony, went up to his bedroom in the house and, and didn't want to observe it. And, and I, for whatever reason, we accepted that. But at the end of the day, I explained to him why I was getting married repeatedly, time and time and time again. And I told him that I wanted him to see this loving healthy relationship. I thought it would be good for them. It was certainly good for me. It, it was my destiny to have this relationship with this woman who I love, this love of my life, and that I hoped... Recording stop. Recording in progress. And that I hoped uh, would be, um, it, it, you know, a, an example of what true love in a marital relationship looks like. And, and again, I, I think he's come around to that. Mm, wonderful. All right, so let's, <clears throat> you have an intimate look at the Bush family, uh, 41 and 43, and there's a great story. I, I, I had the, the privilege and the honor when you invited me uh, to the commemoration of the 50th year of the signing of uh, civil rights bills, and you put together this incredible this orchestration of celebrity and, and, and power and influence uh, at the LBJ Library. And uh, what, year, what year is that again? 2014. 2014, right. So uh, you invited me and here I am in this intimate setting with 
George Bush, you know, 43, and but Bill Clinton's in the room, and Carter's there, and they're all, they, in this. How many people were in that 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 dinner finally that where you interviewed George Bush? So we had four presidents back to back to back to back. We had uh, Jimmy Carter on night one, Bill Clinton on night two. Uh, Barack and Michelle Obama on the afternoon of day three, and then George and Laura Bush on the evening of day three. So, but they didn't come at the same time because so they could have their own platform. And I, the dinner I think that you're talking about with George W. Bush was a pretty intimate dinner. It was probably a dinner for 125 or so in the, on the 10th floor of the LBJ Library. And as you know, uh, I had been talking to George W. Bush for a while about, I was interviewing him for the book uh, called The Last Republicans. Uh, inside the extraordinary relationship between George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. And I'd been talking to both Bush presidents and became very close with both of them during the course of that that time. I remained close to George W. Bush. George H.W. Bush, I should mention, did not come, but just because he was uh, his health was failing at that time. But I got to talk to them about their relationship. And it's you know, the, the, the Bushes are pretty circumspect about their family relationships. They're not particularly introspective people. Uh, they refuse to be thrown on the on the psychiatrist's couch. They don't want to talk about the intricacies of of the, the, the father-son relationship. But they I told them history is going to record this whether you uh, participate or not. And I hope you can trust me to tell your story faithfully. And they did. They talked to me about their relationship, the only time that they did on record. And it was, it's a remarkable story. You're, you're, you know, you, you, the, the, you, we only had that one other time in history with John Adams and John Quincy Adams. But there was 24 years separating their presidencies. And John Adams died shortly into his, his son's uh, tenure as president, about a year and a quarter into his tenure. So he wasn't in a position to be of influence to his son. George H.W. Bush, on the other hand, was. There was only eight years that separated their presidency, and he was a spry 70-something-year-old when his son took the presidency. So it was a story that needed to be told, and I really did learn a lot about that father-son dynamic. Well, not they must have trusted you, because when we were at that evening and uh, the setup and uh, George W. Bush summarily tells the press to get out of the room. Yeah. And uh, so they, they all leave. And so now he drops his guard a little bit and he says, and this is in front of everybody, George Bush says to you, well, you know, my parents really like you. I mean, my mom really likes it. She doesn't like anyway. I think she likes you more than she likes me, <laughs> which, which, you know, brought the room down and you and your, and your, and your, Mark, one of the things I love about you, you are so um, self-deprecating in a way, almost to your detriment, because you've done so many incredible things in your life. But just seeing you up there, one, I was just beaming with pride, but two, the way you conducted yourself in that interview and uh, the poise you had. And I'd seen you uh, interviewing uh, President Obama before that in the afternoon. And so... You know, your stock was huge in my eyes and, and, and only grew. But I just love the candor with which you we spoke with him and you really got him to be honest in that. I mean, from my perspective, you know, well, here's what I hear from the sidelines, right? Well, the only reason 
uh, George W. Bush invaded Iraq was because to vindicate his father and uh, Saddam Hussein. But you know so much more about their relationship. What what strikes you about their relationship, both from father's perspective and, and the pride he has in his son, but also from the perspective of son who's looking to fill the massive shoes of his father and wanting nothing more than his adoration and his love? You know, it's, uh, you and I have talked about this, and um, uh, we both achieve some level of success, and we realize how daunting that can be for our sons in particular, because there's a there's a different relationship between a son and a father than there is between a daughter and a father, for whatever reasons that might be. But think about what it might have looked like from George W. Bush's perspective, right? Uh, he was certainly never the prodigal. As he said to me, um, and uh, I, I don't know if this is a G-rated podcast, but he said to me on the record, which is, and this is in the book, I was never the prodigal because I never left my family. And he added, uh, uh, you know, I drank a lot of whiskey and I chased a lot of pussy, but I was never the prodigal. <laughs> and I think he was. He, he, he was. He had a good time in his youth. And he was really like I was in my 20s trying to find himself. And it wouldn't come to him until later in his life. Giving up drinking was a huge step in the right direction for George uh, W. Bush, which he did around his 40th birthday. After his wife said, it's either me or, or you know, or, or, or uh, 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 Colin, Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm, cut this out, please. It's, um, uh, oh, right, it's either me or Jim Beam, you know, uh, because she saw what drink was doing to him. And when I think he left alcohol behind, he, he, he went to a very new stage and different stage in his life. And part of it, I think, was trying to establish himself in the world. Given his father's enormous success, his father, his namesake, had achieved gargantuan success by that point. He had been a congressman. He had been the ambassador, the American ambassador to the UN. He had been a special envoy to China. He had been the head of the Republican Party. And then we'd become vice president under Ronald Reagan and then president in his own right uh, after Reagan left office. So, and achieved the huge success. And that was really hard for. George W. Bush to come to terms with. But what he will say, Nick, and this makes all the difference in the world, as I think we probably hopefully know from our own parenting experiences, he knew his father loved him unconditionally. His father's love was not contingent on him achieving some level of success. And that made an enormous difference in George Walker Bush's life. <clears throat> you know, it's it's easy to say, well, it's either me or it's the booze, but you still got to go through, you got to walk that gauntlet. And did uh, George W. Bush ever articulate any of that process to, of, of getting sober to you? Did he share any of that with you? He did, you know, and, and the interesting thing is uh, for George W. Bush, who has enormous discipline, there were no, you know, there were no 12 steps. There were no meetings in church basements. There was none of that stuff. He decided one day in, in, in Colorado Springs, as it happens, that he was going to quit drinking after a massive hangover um, uh, that he had after drinking the, the previous night, celebrating his, his and another person's 40th birthday. And that was it. He gave it up cold turkey and never looked back, has not taken a drink since. 
again, and it's that enormous discipline that ultimately propelled his political life, allowed him to achieve the governorship of, of Texas and ultimately parlay that into becoming the 43rd president of the United States, partly because of the capital that his father had as the 41st president of the United States. He was a brand name that people could trust, and I think he realized that too, and realized there was a responsibility in carrying that that Bush name. But it speaks volumes about his dad. You know, you mentioned the speculation around their relationship. Did George W. Bush march into uh, Iraq and take out Saddam Hussein in order to vindicate his father or because his father told him or whatever it was. There were all these, there was all this speculation during that time about what his father was doing behind the scenes. From everything I could tell based on talking with them and talking with others, the only thing his father did, his father never gave unsolicited advice to George W. Bush because he knew the burdens of the presidency. The only thing he did for his son was say, son, I love you. I'm here for you if you need me. I understand what you're going through and let me know what I can do to help you and make you more comfortable in this role. And that was it. And then he stepped back because he loved and had faith in his son. He allowed him to find his own way in the presidency. And so anyone who knows the Bushes uh, will know that that is true. There was not another agenda on the part of George Herbert Walker Bush. That's all he Mm -hmm. wanted from his son. Well, you know, look at that, the magnitude of that trust and demonstration of unconditional loving that a father has for their son when the spotlight is so glaring. And here, um, you know, George Sr. only was a one-term president, right? And so he's looking at perhaps, I wasn't in his head, where did I go wrong? What could I have done differently? Why wasn't I a two-term president? And I don't want my son to make that same mistake, not only for my son, but also as vindication for me as the father, right? And so what do I, how do I coach him so that he will live beyond me and he will then vindicate the name Bush that we can be a two-term presidency team? The fact that he stood away from that and sacrifice whatever those hurts and feelings were so that his son could have his own experience, I think is an incredible demonstration of support and, and love. I think that's absolutely right. And are there other feelings that uh, in this very nuanced situation that he might have? Of course there are. The, the feelings go far deeper than that. But it was overwhelmingly about love and pride in his son. And the one reason that he wanted to see him, the overriding reason that he wanted to see him win the presidency in 2000 and become reelected in 2004 is because he didn't want to see his son get hurt. There was a time uh, in, in 1994 when both of his sons are running for the governorships of their, their states, Jeb Bush in Florida and George W. Bush here in Texas. Jeb Bush was favored to win his race. George W. Bush, it didn't look like he was going to win his until the very end. And ultimately, Jeb Bush lost and George W. Bush won. And as George H.W. Bush would tell you, his pride for George W. Bush was, um, was not as great as his profound sadness for his son and the pain he knew he was going through by losing the governorship of Florida. 
And that was true for both, both Bushes. Of course, they were proud of George W. Bush and seeing that torch carried on, that political torch carried on from the Bush family into the next generation. But mostly, they were hurting for their son who had lost his race. Hmm. Well, it's, it's, I just so love the opportunity that you've had. Um, any, any thoughts as we wrap up because you've, you, I loved your book, Incomparable Grace, and this, this is not the platform to plug your book. I'm just so proud of you, and I, I just quell every time I, I see you on TV or because you're my buddy, and, and, I, and I love you. Um, but I, to the point of JFK and his son, that dynamic, um, you know, we all know the salute from from an infant towards his father, to, if, if he knew what that was or what he was doing. But any takeaways you had on Kennedy as a, as a father um, with his son? You know, I, I, he knew the value of his kids politically. So, you, so, so those photographs that you see of the Kennedys, which are so intoxicating, they're just, they, they, um, you, you see this young president, this young, vivacious president with his family. I think that uh, Jack Kennedy knew their political value. There wasn't an editor in the entire country who wouldn't kill for those photographs, knowing that they would sell uh, on the newsstand. And, and Kennedy knew that. Kennedy knew the, the power of image. And then that image of being a, a, an engaged, loving father would resonate with the American public. And, and not only did it uh, indeed do so in, in his time, it, it continues to do so when you see those pictures. But they were largely staged. And I think he was a loving parent without question. But it was a very different age as it was for your and my father, too. And he was not as engaged with his parents. What you don't see in those photographs is John F. Kennedy clapping and getting the help to come in to shepherd the kids out so he could go on with his day. Um, but there's no question that there was love and pride in his family. And, uh, and the Kennedy family had a certain ethos that continues today. I think like the Bushes, they believe deeply in giving back to their to their country. And I think uh, certainly the Kennedy kids got that from their father, just as uh, John F. Kennedy got it from his very controversial, but very loving father, Joe Kennedy. Mm. Well, Mark, this has just been tremendous. Uh, I so thank you for, for participating with me and just sharing your heart and who you are as, as not only a human being, but uh, as a friend and, and as a wonderful dad. Um, and I just, I guess my final question to you is this, as you evaluate your, your role as a father today, what do you look forward to uh, as a dad and, and what do you want to participate more fully in uh, as, a, as a father going forward? You know, I just want to be a part of their lives in whatever way they need me and my wife. I just want to be there for them in whatever capacity will allow them to find their best selves and their happiest and healthiest roots through life. And that's going to look different for each kid. But uh, that's the role that, that I want to play. And that's the role that I know you play for your kids. Well, thank you, Mark. And thank you all so much for tuning in to 
this wonderful episode of Speaking Kid. Uh, if you'd like to get more information about Mark, you can do so on my website. And uh, thank you all. We'll, we'll check you out next time. I love you, Nick. Thank you for your 45 years of deep, meaningful friendship. I love you. Yay. <laughs> I love you, too. I love you. Thanks, everybody. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode today, you can find out more about me and the work I do, along with my guests, at nicksegel.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.